So let me ask a, a question. Who in, who in your life do you want to be like? And we all, if you think about it, we all, we all tend to imitate what we admire, right? right? Growing up, I remember I used, to, I used to imitate the pitching styles of different members of the Philadelphia Phillies. They all had a unique motion, a way that they pitched. My kids do the same thing with batting stances. Right? But it's in just about every area of life. If you're a musician, if you're a, a professional musician, you often start off by imitating those that you admire. Right? Even the best of bands usually start off covering the music of, of other bands, of other people that have gone before them. If you're an artist, you take your easel to the museum and you paint the works of the, of the masterpieces that are there. If you're in the trades, you find a master and you become an apprentice. If you're in business, you find a mentor. All of us do it. And there's nothing inherently wrong with any of that. It's how we, it's how we learn. But the danger, of course, comes from the fact that not that we imitate, but that we imitate at times the wrong things. And if you're a, if, if you're a little leaguer, for example, there are certain major leaguers that I would tell you not to watch because the way they do it will ruin your your swing. And the same is true in life. Who you imitate makes a difference. This morning's scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. So if you have a Bible, why don't you take it out and turn there. If you don't, then you can take one that's on the rack in front of you, and you can find Ephesians chapter 5 on page 1,159. Just as a reminder, we're spending the fall in this second half of this letter from the Apostle Paul because we want to examine what it means to live a Christian life. In Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul primarily is examining the identity of a Christian, who a Christian is. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, the primary focus shifts, and he begins to say, look at, and ask us to examine how a Christian, in light of who he is, now then should live. So we're right in the middle of that. That's where Ephesians chapter 5 finds us. Listen as I read verses 1 to 7. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Okay, so this is how I summarize that. What we see here, what Paul is, is showing us, is he's showing us right, what to imitate, what not to imitate, and how to do it. What to imitate, what not to imitate, and how to do it. What to imitate? Well, we imitate God. What not to imitate? The idolater and all of the practices that come along with what he would do. And how to do it as a dearly loved child of a God who sacrificed himself for us. So to just state that in sort of a, a thesis statement, we are to imitate God and not the idolater because we are loved by a sacrificial Savior. We are to imitate God and not the idolater because we are loved by a sacrificial Savior. So let's take a minute. Let's look at each of those. First, what to imitate. This is the first part of verse 1. It's about as clearly stated as it can be. What do we imitate? Paul says, be imitators of God. 
that's clearly stated, but what does that what does that mean? Well, to imitate, in a general sense, of course, means to closely copy something, to repeat someone's speech or actions or behavior. And the word comes from a Greek word, mimeo, that, that gives us the word mimic. But the word mimic in our language actually conveys sort of something different. A lot of times when we use the word mimicking, we're actually thinking of someone who's making fun of someone else when they imitate them, right? One child to another child. Mom, he's mimicking me, right? Mimic. But that's not what's being spoken of here. This is the, to imitate God is different than this. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. What do, they, what do they say about imitation, right? Imitation is the sincerest form of what? Flattery, right? And it's not an insincere flattery. It's, it's admiration. That's the sense in which Paul is, is using the word here. The reason that we should imitate something is because we are driven by an admiration of it. In a very true sense, then, imitation is an act of worship. The reason, then, that we should imitate God is because God possesses qualities that are supremely worthy of imitating, certain attributes of his character that we should, should imitate. Now, the theologians, the theologians, they have a name for these attributes. These are the, the communicable attributes, those attributes, those aspects of God's character that he intends to communicate to us. He intends to transfer to us that we are intended to, to replicate. Now, there are non-communicable attributes as well, Right, attributes of God that we don't share, we cannot imitate. Those are the ones that are related to his, his godness, if you will. For example, his, his self-existence, his, his self-sufficiency. Right? God's existence is not dependent on anything outside of himself. We don't imitate that. Neither can we imitate any of the, any of the omnis. Right? Right? God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Right? And we're not in any of those in any of those areas. But the Bible tells us, does tell us, that human beings are made uniquely in the image of God, that we're made in his image. And then there are, therefore, certain attributes of God's character that we share, and that, always under his authority, of course, we are to imitate. For example, justice, wisdom, patience, love, forgiveness. Those are all aspects of God's character that we are to imitate because they are communicable attributes. And it's those last two, love and forgiveness, that I think Paul probably has most clearly in view here when he says in this text to be imitators of God. And I think that because of the context, the context in both directions. Actually, if you go back and you go forward, if, if verse 1 says, be imitators of God, therefore. And the therefore, of course, takes us back to the end of chapter 4 and what Kevin was talking about Last week, remember the paragraph, the chapter divisions and breaks in our translations, they didn't exist in the original translations, the original manuscripts. And, and we, you know, for purposes of dividing up weeks in our sermons, we make breaks. We divide them up into weekly texts. But Paul is just flowing from the end of chapter 4, verse 32, when he wrote, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore. Right? So, so you see, we imitate God by showing people kindness and compassion, by extending to them forgiveness when we're wronged, just like God in Christ forgave you, you should forgive others. But then we see another part of what we're to imitate as we keep reading from verse 1 into verse 2. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So we're also to imitate God by loving other people. Just like God in Christ loved us with his whole life, sacrificed himself for us, that's how we are to love other people. 
And in this, of course, we see th- this happens, this sacrificing and this love for other people, this kindness and forgiveness, this shows itself to us in big ways and it shows itself to us in, in small ways, right? We saw the imitation of God, for example, the imitation of sacrificial love this week in, in the example of a, a husband of 23 years celebrating his anniversary with his wife Sunday night in Las Vegas when he willingly chose to take his wife and put her underneath of him so that he took the bullets that would have killed her and killed him instead. Sacrificial love. And we see it in the forgiveness in big ways, God's forgiveness when Christians in instances like Columbine High School in Colorado years ago, or more recently at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, when those people who have been victims of perpetrators of violence are able to forgive those people extend forgiveness to them, not because they condone the action, but because they are forgiving them based on the experience of themselves having first been forgiven by God in Christ. But it's not just, it's not just in the big ways, of course, that we imitate God and love and forgiveness, right? You see the sacrificial love of God every time a, child, a parent sacrifices sleep to get up with a, a child in the middle of the night. Every time an employee stays late at work to help a coworker with a project, every time a classmate helps a fellow classmate with his homework, every time a child shares a toy with another child. We see forgiveness when we forgive others when they make an offensive comment or something that we take the wrong way, when we forgive an unintended or an intended slight that someone makes towards us, when when someone has taken something from us, whether it's something physically or a piece of our reputation or a piece of 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 our dignity, when we forgive them, We mirror, we imitate God in his forgiveness of us. So those are the ways that we're we're imitators of God. So so what do we imitate? We imitate God, specifically in showing forgiveness and in showing sacrificial love. But, somewhat uncomfortably if we're honest, Paul goes on, and he goes on to tell us what not to imitate. And it's uncomfortable because even if we don't measure up to the standards of love and forgiveness that God calls us to imitate, right? They are at least inspiring. We love the stories of self-sacrifice. They're wonderful. We love to tell them, to retell them, to post them on Facebook, that we love them. But now Paul transitions. He gets into now a fairly serious warning, and he runs through a list of things that might, at the outset at least, seem somewhat unrelated, but all of which at the root are actually very similar. And the reason it gets uncomfortable is, is because Paul gets specific, almost personal, with some things that the Christian can't be doing if they want to be in relationship with this loving and sacrificial God. Things that have no part in their lives, in our lives, if we want to be in relationship with him. Let's look at him. It's really in verses 3 and 4 that he lays them out. Let me read it again. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Okay, now let's, look, let's, let's first, let's look at these things. Just make sure we understand what Paul's talking about so that there's no confusion here. First, sexual immorality. Now, when this phrase is used in most modern translations of the New Testament, when it says sexual immorality, what it's doing is it's translating the Greek word porneia, which is where we get our word for pornography, but it's significantly broader than that. In its usage in the New Testament, it's, it's, it's always referring to any kind of sexual activity or sexual behavior that is outside of God's design for the expression of sexuality within the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. 
And so the term then includes adultery. It includes sexual activity before marriage. It includes sexual activity after a marriage has ended and before another one has begun. It includes polygamy. It includes abusive relationships like rape and incest. It includes sexual activity with someone of the same gender. And it includes even the lustful objectifying of someone, even if there's no physical activity or contact at all. Now, Paul doesn't expand on any of these here, and you have to go elsewhere to see in more detail what the Bible has to say, but you can go elsewhere to see what the Bible has to say. In a few weeks, we're going to look in more detail at at husbands and wives in the context of marriage because that's what Paul does later in Ephesians chapter 5. He lays out the big grand vision of what marriage between a man and a woman is really intended to to do. All right, but if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7, you see there in more detail Paul going through and talking about the consequences, the implications, the extended treatment of marriage and sexual immorality. And you can go to the Gospels if you want to see what Jesus says in places like Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19 to see what Jesus has to say about, about lust and adultery and the design and the purpose of, of marriage. But here Paul just states it. He just says that there should not even be a hint of it, not even a hint of sexual immorality. But then he expands the idea even further. He says not not, not a hint of sexual immorality, immorality, nor any kind of impurity. That is anything, not just sexual, that would tamper with your original design. Or of greed. 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 The insatiable desire for more than what is rightfully yours a jealous longing for what other people have. And you see, really, these things are all linked together. What is, after all, sexual immorality? It is, in a sense, a desire for more than what is rightfully yours, what has been rightfully given to you. It is a jealous longing, perhaps, for something that someone else has. This this idea of greed is is covetousness. This is Tenth Commandment stuff. You shall not covet that which belongs to your neighbor. Now, importantly, greed is not always nor even usually, probably, a desire for something that is in itself bad. No, greed is an inordinate desire. It's a a desire that oversteps its bounds, that's out of proportion to what the real need is. Or, in other senses, sometimes what greed is, is it's not so much a desire for the thing itself, but for the the reputation, for the emotional hit, even for the the, the, the peace of mind that comes with possessing what you think that item will, will give you. So that's, that's what he says. Now, verse 4, he goes on, no obscenity, no foolish talk, no coarse joking. Now, obscenity means really having no regard for any standard whatsoever. Probably here, based on context, it's, it's focused on obscene speech mainly, but it's, it's anything that's outside of, of, of standards that have been set. And he talks about foolish talk. Right? Don't have, not foolish talk doesn't have anything to do with a lack of intelligence. There's no sin associated with a lack of intelligence. This is talking about a lack of wisdom. Right? The, this is kind of it's kind of funny. The, the the Greek word here is moro logia. Moro is where we get the word moron. This is literally the words of a moron. Right? That's what this is saying. Right now, and coarse joking, which is not to say, which is not to say that that, that it's out of place for any kind of humor, even for irony gentle sarcasm. That would truly be terrible, if that's what it were saying. But it's not. It's not. You, there's, nothing, there's nothing wrong with, 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 with being able to, to, to make light of yourself, to, to laugh, right? But what it does mean is that you shouldn't joke about that which is serious, that which is sacred. 
It means that your laughter shouldn't be at the expense of, of someone else or, 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 or strike at the security of, of another person, the emotional heart of who they are. For example, just two examples that kind of come to mind. As a husband, as a parent, I think there's lots of room for good-natured teasing, if you will, playful joking. Because when it's done correctly, what it is is just a, it's just a lack of taking yourself seriously, which is very important in the context of, of life. But there are things that I think, in each of those relationships, that aren't funny. Right, for example, whenever I've done premarital counseling, I always, I always say to them, I always say, look, jokes about divorce, the, the old ball and chain kind of jokes, the jokes about stashing away money where, like, you know, so you can escape someday by yourself to some tropical island, right? They're never funny, right? Erase them from your vocabulary from the beginning, right? Or as a parent, right, for example, as advised, never joke about abandoning your children, about leaving them behind, about selling them or something, even if you think that they understand that you're only joking. Right? It's not helpful. And, and, and more often than not, when jokes come out like that, I mean, sometimes it may just simply be a poor attempt at trying to be humorous, but more often than not, when jokes like that are made, it's not really humor that the person is after, it's either an, an, an expression of anger or frustration, sort of veiled as an attempt to be funny, or it's an, a, a timid attempt to sort of make, make yourself look better at the expense of someone else. And that's what makes it inappropriate. Of course, joking. Okay, so there's the list. These are the things that should not be present in the life of a, of a God imitator, in the life of a, of a Christian. But why? Right? Why does Paul say these things shouldn't be present in the life of a, of a Christian? Well, there's, there's a warning and there's an explanation. And the warning is fairly clear in verses 5 and 6 and 7. Right? The warning is that for any person who would imitate this type of behavior, you have, verse 5, no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Then in verse 6, because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Okay, then, that's a fairly strong warning. Imitate the wrong things, and you're disinherited. God's wrath comes down on you. Does that seem too strong? Too harsh? But look a little bit more carefully at verse 5, and you see not only the warning, but you see, you see what I think is a bit of the explanation for why these things are such a big deal. Paul says in verse 5 that a person who is immoral, impure, greedy. In other words, this is a summary of what, of what he's been describing, sexual immorality, greed, impurity of speech and of, and of motive. That kind of person is what? He's an idolater. An idolater. Now, the average person in the 21st century, if, if you go up to them and you say, like, you're an idolater, the response, ooh, <laughs> you called me an idolater, <laughs> right? I mean, try it. Try going out to somebody at Bonzel Park or something, you know, this afternoon, you're on, you go up to them and say, like, you are an idolater. And on the list of things that will get you punched in the nose, that's, that's not at the top of the list. It's probably not even on the first page. Now, they, they're not going to get angry at you. They might run from you, but not because they're afraid of you, but because they think you're a weirdo or something. Right? That's not how we, we don't, we don't typically ascribe much weight to the word idolater. But Paul does. Paul means it very seriously. It's serious because idolatry is the choice to imitate something other than God, other than the God who made you. It's effectively saying to God that you would prefer to ascribe infinite value and worth. You would prefer to imitate something else. Remember what imitation is. It's the sincerest form of flattery. 
which stated differently means that your imitation is the most accurate reflection of what you're really worshiping. Now, if it's a cute hairstyle or a band you like or a batting stance or something like that, it's in all, in all likelihood, it's, it's harmless. It actually is, like I said, the way that we learn. Now, each of those things could, I suppose, raised to a certain status, become idols, but in most of the cases, that's not idolatry. But when you start getting into the kind of things that Paul's talking about here, when you are imitating something that God clearly prohibits, then it means that you're switching allegiance, right? And to align yourself, to partner yourself with something, as it says in verse 7, to partner yourself with those who oppose the creator and the sustainer of the universe, that is idolatry, and the consequences are rightly serious. But imitating that which God prohibits is serious, not just because God is just and because he demands allegiance. He is, of course, just, and he does rightly demand our allegiance. But, but idolatry isn't a big deal simply because God's going to get you. Right? It's a big deal because imitating the wrong thing will inevitably lead to your destruction. That's what idols do. They demand your allegiance, but they're never able to deliver on their promises. And in fact, ultimately, and in the end, they turn on you. In other words, why the warning against the danger of imitating the wrong things? Why? Because God loves you. William Barclay said that the, the greatest disservice, the greatest disservice a man can do to a fellow man is to make him think lightly of sin. The greatest disservice a man can do to a fellow man is to make him think lightly of sin. Now, think, that, think of that then in the context of God. The greatest disservice that God could possibly do to his creation is to allow him to think lightly of that which will destroy him. God warns us about the danger of imitating the wrong things, and we, in turn, warn each other, not because, not because we dislike each other, not out of hatred, but out of, ultimately, love. Okay, so we've seen, number one, what to imitate. Number two, we've seen what not to imitate. Now, three, finally, how to do it. And we've already actually read the text where Paul talks about this, but we have to highlight it because, because it's so important. In fact, it's absolutely critical. We have to continue coming back to this topic in these sermons this fall in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 of what truly motivates Christian behavior and Christian change. Because it's far too easy for us to, to misunderstand how this works. On the one hand, some of us, when we hear this, we, we fall into despair because we want to change we're convicted about, the, about what's going on in our lives, we want to, but we feel stuck. We feel like we don't have the power to do that, and we live in, in dread of God as we legitimately struggle with our sin. Now, on the other hand, there are, there are others of us, perhaps, who hear what God is saying here, and, and we don't agree with what God says. In fact, we resent that he would dare to command me to stop doing what I enjoy, what I think is so core to who I am as a human being. So what's the motivation that Paul gives here? What does Paul say? Well, like I said, we are, he already said it. Let's look again at verses 1 and 2. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, what's Paul saying? First thing he's saying is that we should imitate God as a dearly loved child, not as a hired worker, not as someone whose status is measured by how well they perform, as a child, a dearly loved child. And what he means by that is a child's status is never in question. 
Their behavior can be out of conformity with what the parent tells them to do, but their status, who they are, the fact that they are loved by the parent is never, is never in question. A child. Then he says that we should imitate God with a constant, conscious and constant understanding that we have a Savior who sacrificed himself for us. Right? This language here, of a fragrant offering and a sacrifice. This is, it's intended to bring to mind the, the sacrifices of the Jewish people in the, in the temple. Sacrifices for sin that throughout the history of, of God's people, God's covenant people, pointed to the ultimate sacrifice that would ultimately take place in the person of Jesus Christ. It reminds us that atonement for the sins of those who are God's children has already been made that those who have cried out for mercy, that those who have placed themselves under their authority, even as they struggle to live that out, that the wrath that is rightly deserved by those who imitate the things that are not of God has already been taken, and it's been taken by Jesus Christ for them. Now, how does this work? How does it work to bring comfort to a person who is struggling with ongoing sin in their life? And, And how does it bring bring a sense of contentment to the one who doesn't understand why God might ask them to give up something that they actually think at this moment is something that they need to keep. Well, to the person who desperately wants to imitate God, who has cried out to him for for rescue, who has submitted their life to him, but who, who still struggles with sin that they can't seem to shake, to that person, Paul says that the starting point for your fight is to remember who you are. Are. You are a child of the king. Now, that isn't to say that there aren't strategic plans that you can make to battle sin in your life. Just go back a couple weeks and listen to the sermons that we were talking about before and go and continue to, to listen in the, in the weeks to come because Paul will continue to talk about that, strategies, ways in which we can lessen the, the grip that idols, the idols that we imitate have on our life and, and, and strategies that we can use to strengthen our ability to imitate God. But the starting point of encouragement, particularly if you're sitting here this morning struggling with fighting an idol that you don't want, sin in a particular area, and you feel trapped by it, the starting point is the reminder that you are a dearly loved child. And this truly loving father, whatever your experience with earthly fathers might be, this father will never abandon his children in the midst of their struggle. Now, what about those of you who, who can't believe that God would ask you to, to give up to something that you hold very, very important, that you hold very, very dear to you? Right? Just look again for a moment at how verse 2 says Christ loved us. Paul says that Christ loved us by giving up himself as an offering and as a sacrifice. You see what Paul's saying here? He's saying our casting off of idols in favor of imitating God requires imitating the sacrifice of Christ. Living a life of love here, it, it, doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that we just, we just have to be nice to everyone. I mean, we should. You should be nice to everyone. But that's, but that's, not, that's not really what Paul's talking about here. Right? That's not what he means when he says live a life of love because he says live a life of love how? As a fragrant offering and as a sacrifice. In the same way that Jesus was a fragrant offering and a, and a sacrifice. Paul is saying that living a life of love as Christ loved us means that we too walk in the way of the cross. And that means that sometimes 
we will be asked to take that which we believe to be most valuable, something that we're sure in our own minds, perhaps, that we can't live it out and take it to the cross and sacrifice it. That which is most valuable in the entire universe, the eternal Son of God, gave himself for you. And by that measure, there is nothing, nothing, that he could ask you to surrender to which you should feel justified in keeping. If he thinks in his love that you would be better off without it, even if you don't understand why that is. See, this is the type of surrender that's required of us when it comes to the sins of sexual immorality, of lust, and of greed. Right? It, might, it might spring more quickly to mind with issues of sexual immorality, but applies to everything. The most significant, the most significant and the most difficult thing that we surrender is not the doing of certain activities or the experiencing of certain pleasures. The most significant and the most difficult thing we surrender is ourselves, our autonomy. Right? That includes the, the right to decide for ourselves what's right and what's wrong. It includes the right to demand an explanation of, of God for why he might choose to deny us what we think we desperately need. Now, God very often does give us in, in Scripture very good explanations of why he commands what he commands us to, to do. And I think there's very good and, and reasonable arguments and inferences that you can draw out of the Scripture that can give you some kind of justification for many of the things that he commands us to do. But ultimately, if we question why a loving God would ask us to do something, that we don't feel as if we should have to do, ultimately, we don't need anything more than the cross to demonstrate that God is for us and that he loves us. Because if you consider the sacrifice that Jesus made, right, then, then even if you don't understand why Jesus might call you to abandon a certain lifestyle, a certain feeling, a, a certain love, you consider, might not that fact alone be enough for you to conclude that you should trust him. A few weeks ago, I read an article by Rachel Gilson. She's a very brave woman. She grew up in a very difficult home. She was abandoned and abused by her earthly father. She was neglected by her mother. Somehow she scratched and clawed her way to Yale University. And it was there that she encountered Jesus for the first time in the pages of scripture and in the in the, in the lives of Christian friends, and she was attracted by Jesus' sacrificial love, by his, his care. But she was also offended at his teaching about sexuality. Now, she had friends that tried to convince her that the, what the Bible called sexual immorality was really just a historic misunderstanding. Now, she didn't like what the Bible said about sexual immorality, but she was, she was a humanities major. She knew how to read books. She knew what text said, and she couldn't conclude anything except that that is, in fact, what it said, but she didn't like it. She didn't understand. How could the love and the intimacy and the companionship that she desired be, forget it, be forbidden by a loving God? And this is what she wrote. She said, thus I had to learn my first lesson of the Christian life, how to obey before I understood. My whole life had taught me to master a concept before I could assent to it. How could I possibly agree to something so costly without grasping the reason? In the end, she says, it came down to trust. I knew Jesus was worthy of trust because he had made 
a greater sacrifice. He had left the bliss, the comfort, the joy of loving and being perfectly loved to live a sorrowful life on earth. He took the pain and shame of a criminal's death and he suffered the father's rejection. Also, I could be welcomed. Who could be more deserving of trust? Now, what belief do you hold that needs to be sacrificed, that needs to die for you to imitate God instead of pursuing immorality, foolish talk, and greed? The belief that you are owed your definition of pleasure? The belief that you get to define for yourself how your body that God created is used? The belief that you get to write the storyline for your life? The belief that you get to have the last word and that you get to be right or thought to be right in every conversation or argument you have. The belief that you don't have enough and that God won't take care of you. Trusting obedience is not easy, but it is possible. And it only works when it comes by way of a relationship with this God. Rachel Gilson says it like this. The obedience of faith only works when it's rooted in a person not in a rule. Imposed on its own, a rule invites us to sit in judgment, weighing its reasonableness. But a rule flowing from relationship smooths the way for faithful obedience. A rule flowing from relationship smooths the way for faithful obedience. God, your loving Father and your sacrificial Savior, calls you to trust Him to imitate him, and to enjoy the inheritance of a dearly loved child. Let's pray. Our Father, we do not deserve in any way a love like this, and yet we long for it with all of our being. Lord, all of the things that we seek after in this world, all the things that we think will give us a sense of security, a sense of identity, all the things that we use to give us pleasures, Lord, ultimately are only worth anything if they point us to you. And so, Lord, we pray that we would find our ultimate satisfaction, our ultimate enjoyment, our ultimate pleasure in you, and that you would enable us first to see and then to bring to the cross all of those things that we hold on to, that we think will satisfy us, that we think give us an identity of who we are, and that we would find our satisfaction and our identity in you and in you alone. Lord, this is not easy, and many of us struggle, but Lord, I pray that they would come to you in relationship, that they would put their faith in you and find themselves as a dearly loved child looking desperately to their father for help. And Lord, may you give them the assurance then that you are the father who will not abandon his children. For we come praying in Jesus' name, amen.